Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. I am Russ, and I have Dr. Pete with me as well. Hello, Dr. Pete. Hello, Russ, and hello, listeners. It's great to be back on the show. And, Russ, those 14 days between shows does feel like a very long time, doesn't it? It does indeed, Pete. That This morning I woke up very excited because I knew that you and I would be talking today. We'd be doing a show, and we would be talking about a lot of the great stuff that came out of the San Francisco Summit recently. And uh, so I was very excited about that. And... Let's get into it. Let's talk about CodeStar. Yes, so CodeStar is one of our brand new services, which just got announced. And uh, CodeStar enables you to quickly develop, build, and deploy applications on AWS. It provides a really simple, simplified, unified user interface, enabling you to easily manage your software development activities all in one single place. So think of it as it's a convergent point for many of our, of our code services. Um, so you can essentially set up an entire continuous delivery tool chain within minutes, which allows you to uh, release your code a lot faster than, that, than Pete, ever before. Mm-hmm. Is that is that why it's called CoStar? Is it essentially code wildcard, if you like, it is. for all of the, so all think, of the code Yeah, services? exactly. So talk about you know code commit, code build, code pipeline, code deploy. Uh, all these things are essentially now converging and surfacing under a single user interface. Um, which actually speeds things up. So you get a uh, basically a single pane of glass, like a dashboard, uh, which includes integration with issue tracking, which comes from uh, Atlassian's Jira software. Uh, and it also makes it really simple for you to track all the progress and all the activities that are taking place as a part of um, your code development activities, which is really, really simple. Now, the other cool thing about it is when you go into... Um, code stuff for the first time and you start off a new project, uh, you actually get prompted for a number of templates. And these include uh, things like uh, Ruby, uh, Java, Python, uh, Node, all these different programming languages and frameworks, and you can then deploy them uh, either serverless or on EC2, for example. We also support uh, Elastic Beanstalk. Um, so all of these things really simplify your development practices um, and takes you from you know zero to, to coding hero uh, in, within minutes because it also sets up things like you know code commit, a Git repo for your project. It helps you to uh, create IAM users and enables them to be either contributors or observers of what you're doing. It also walks you through things like um, setting up either Visual Studio or Eclipse or your command line tools for being able to um, check in and check out your code. Um, as well as, you know, once you've started to, once you commit your code into uh, code commit, uh, it'll also kick off a uh, code pipeline and a code build to actually go and run your code. So for example, within minutes, uh, you could be running a, you know, a serverless application in Lambda um, just by clicking a couple of uh, buttons in the wizard. Awesome. And is there an additional charge for using CodeStar, Pete? Not at all, Russ. Uh, there is no additional charge. You only pay for the typically the AWS resources that you provision for developing and running your applications. So whether that is uh, EC2 or Lambda, 
Um, and all of these service and, and Codestar currently is available in Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, and Ireland. So if you want to have a go and have a play with the actual brand new service, I highly recommend it. I've had a go with it. Um, it was a lot of fun and uh, it really sped things up. Instead of jumping into each of those services, uh, like I said, we've converged them together all in the one single uh, Codestar service Fantastic. on the console. Fantastic. Fantastic, Pete. Now, so. After, I was just going to say. After you, please. Please, I <laughs> we, we really shouldn't fight for the microphone, should we? <laughs> after you. Okay. All right. After me. So so talking about code, um, I also want to talk about databases now. Uh, so I want to throw the mic over to you because there's something else that's also now appeared on the horizon, and that is Amazon Redshift Spectrum. What is that? Oh, Pete, do you cast your mind back to when you were a mm-hmm. kid? Did you have a favorite toy that you thought – could not get any better. It was just, you loved it, you played with it. It was just, it was perfect. And then one day. I did. <laughs> then I did. one day. The teddy bear. His head fell off, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and then one day the manufacturers bra- brought out a, uh, an addition or a, a snap-on or an add-on to that toy and mm. it just made it even better. You fell in love with it all over again. Okay. For me, it was the Evil Knievel um, little bike that you could get, the wind-up bike, which I thought was fantastic. And then one day they brought out a ramp as well, and you can imagine that kind of kicked off a whole new, a whole new hours Ooh. of fun. Uh, where I'm going with this is that. Yes, I'm wondering. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry for that little trip down memory lane there. Where I'm going is that uh, Redshift, Amazon Redshift, um, is uh, probably my favourite service. Although you shouldn't have favorites, a bit like kids, shouldn't have favorite kids. Uh, But Amazon Redshift is a fantastic service. It's our data warehousing service, as you know. And recently we announced uh, Redshift Spectrum. And this adds a whole nother dimension to to using Redshift. So the way Redshift works is that it's a data warehouse and typically you load your data into it, into the local disk that's attached to the Redshift cluster. And from there you you run your queries, etc. What we've announced with Spectrum now is the ability to also create external tables which allow you to then actually reach out and query data that is sitting in S3. Now this is incredibly powerful, Pete, because what you can do is you can then do things like join your S3 data with some of your locally held data within within the Redshift database. And it really just kind of opens up uh, that, that Redshift environment now. To, to start querying some of that data in S3 because more and more of our customers are using S3 as a data lake mm-hmm. uh, and getting a lot of value from that. And so it made perfect sense for us to allow people to much more easily get into that S3 data um, and use it within Redshift as well. So that's um, that's extremely exciting. That's a great bolt-on. That's a, that's a great new toy extension. So, so Russ, walk our, walk our listeners through, you know, how does this fit into the whole ecosystem of things like Athena? Yeah, great question, Pete. So obviously the, the first question that comes up from a lot of customers is exactly that one. Um, and on the surface, they appear to be similar. They offer you SQL access to, to S3 data. But when you kind of look at them, uh, you really need to think about what, what's the workload that, that you're trying to, to use them for. So for example, if you, if you need some of the functionality that a data warehouse gives you, then that's really where you want to be looking at Redshift. So for example... Typically, in a data warehouse, you're dealing with um, uh, some some large tables, but also lots of other dimensional tables or lookup tables as well. 
And those tables you then join with your big with your big fact table. And those mm-hmm. dimension tables often get updated. And one of the key things about data in S3 is that those files in S3 are typically immutable. So you would add more files, but you typically don't update the data within those files. That's right. So it's like a read-only access. Exactly. That's right. So so um, whereas with Athena, uh, think about Athena as much more about giving you access to S3 data where typically you've got one big one big file. You can do joins within Athena, but it's not it's not really its sweet spot. So, for example, if you had uh, cloud trial logs, for example, that you needed to query because you were looking for something specific or you were trying to do some kind of analysis on, that's the perfect use case for Athena because you don't need to keep it in your data warehouse. You can keep it cheaply on S3, but then you can you can query it when you need to. I love it. You know, it's, it's come a long way. You know, I remember, you know, when I think back to my younger days, you know, we used to think about, you know, binary encoding of information and squeezing it to the fewest number of bits. And, and now look at us, you know, we've got lots of data in plain unstructured text just sitting as blobs in S3 and, and now you can do queries on it. I think we've, we've, we've really progressed. We have indeed. And the, the one, one last thing I'll say about that, Pete, is, is obviously the, the great thing about using S3 as your data lake is the ability to use different query engines against that. So the nice thing about this this add-on to Redshift now is that Redshift can now read this data, but that data can also be seen by lots of other engines as well. So you may be also querying it through Athena. You may be querying it through EMR. You might be using other tools across it as well. So it really kind of opens up that um, that whole uh, ecosystem of engines against that, that data. And we talk a lot in the big data space about trying to decouple storage from processing because mm-hmm. that that really gives you a tremendous flexibility uh, in how you access that data. And I think this this new add-on to Redshift really um, is just another uh, another addition to that to that story. Yeah. That's very, very cool. And I just want to throw in a sidebar. I was just reading an interesting blog on um, OpenStreetMap recently, which came out uh, just in early April. And uh, what I found really fascinating is that um, you can now get, you know, open street view in the global, the whole planet uh, available to you um, so you can query it with Athena, which is very, very cool. And that's actually sitting uh, in an S3 bucket. Uh, so you get the planet data, you get the history, and you get the chain sets all in uh, Apache Orc format, very Russ, nice. which is yeah. very cool. For those that know what Apache Orc is, Russ? Yeah, that's right. So so one of the things, Pete, obviously, is is as you get deeper and deeper into the whole data lake scenario, you realize that the... The whole storage paradigm and the data format paradigm now has moved just beyond CSV and JSON and row-based mm. formats into more specialized formats that are much better for this type of analytical querying that we're seeing going on now. And so a lot of the columnar formats like ORC and Parquet, for example, are really designed to give you much faster performance when you're querying them through through Athena or EMR or Redshift, etc. So um, if you haven't looked at those columnar formats and you're thinking about a data lake, definitely um, have a look at Parquet, have a look at ORC, because um, they can give you uh, much better performance for those types of queries. I've got a cool idea, Russ. I think what we should do is we should you should do the developer bits in the show. I should do the big data bits and see how we go. I'm enjoying this Let's uh, give it a go. data stuff. <laughs> Well, I think we should change gears now. Maybe to go back to some hardware. What do you think? Look, I know you're never too far away from the hardware, Pete. Give, give us a give us a quick rundown on the F ones. 
Yes, yeah, so you may have heard that we've uh, we've announced the um, F1 instance types back at uh, reInvent last year, uh, and we had a massive response, really an overwhelming response. Uh, we had over 2,000 uh, requests for access to the actual instance types, and these are the field programmable gateway instances called the F1s. We've actually given um, access to over 200 different developers to experiment with the hardware development kit and give them access to the actual F1 instances. Now, uh, for some of you, you may not know what the an FPGA is. That's a field programmable gate array. And the idea of an FPGA is that uh, it has the potential to provide you up to 30 times speed improvements over data analytics, you know, looking at, you know, genomics, um, you know, uh, encryption algorithms, and basically running your software faster, but also running in parallel. Uh, so as of as of now, the F1 instances are now generally available in US East. So go check them out. Uh, now, during the actual um, uh, preview period, uh, we kept actually increasing and adding additional support. So for example, we've uh, created a developer community uh, via which is actually online. So you can join the AWS FPGA Developer Forum, uh, a place which is really a hangout for FPGA developers to really share experiences and comment on you know, what they're finding and sharing it with the actual uh, broader ecosystem. Uh, we've also published the hardware uh, development kit along with the software development kit on GitHub. So you can actually see how that stuff is done. Uh, we've provided additional support for uh, VHDL and Verilog, which is basically just programming frameworks and um, um, ways of developing your software. We've created a virtual lab environment for uh, for JTAG, uh, LED, and DIP switches, which is really uh, a way of debugging your applications because debugging is very different, obviously, in the hardware space, which is what the field programmable gate arrays are, which are literally silicon. Um, and we've also shared a lot of information around uh, FPGA management, its runtime, and also provided support for OpenCL. And OpenCL is not to be confused with uh, Open Computer Vision, OpenCV. Uh, so Open Computer Language, so OpenCL, is a framework for writing programs that execute across different heterogeneous hardware platforms. So whether you're building your applications for CPUs, for GPUs, for digital signal processors like DSPs or FPGAs in this case, um, you can go away and actually learn OpenCL. What I really like, Russ, here is that uh, uh, one of our one of our partners called uh, Reconfigure.io has actually gone ahead and provide a online service where you can actually program FPGAs using the Go programming language, mm. which is very, very cool. That's great. So you can build, test, and deploy your code uh, using Go, which is very different. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much higher abstraction for building your applications, um, which makes the entry level a lot friendlier to most developers. Uh, and we have other uh, partners like um, Etica Genome who are actually developing and using the F1 instances to provide you know, whole genome sequences that run in real time, which wow. I think is absolutely incredible. So like I said before, we, we've gone from the world of bits and bytes uh, now to the uh, big data side of things. And we've also provided lots of hardware to support you on that journey. So certainly go check out the F1 instances, Russ. They're incredibly, incredibly cool. Um, and uh, keeping with the theme of you doing software stuff, tell us a little bit about Amazon DynamoDB. Well, Pete, as you know, <laughs> DynamoDB is our managed NoSQL database and designed to give you extremely low latency reads and writes, uh, typically in the, uh, you know, in the milliseconds. Now, there are many applications where milliseconds is simply too slow and customers mm -hmm. actually want to do reads and writes in microseconds. That's right. So what DAX helps you with is on the read side of things, uh, it can give you 
uh, reads in the microsecond range. And for those of you who um, who are not up with uh, uh, the different types of uh, uh, at seconds, a microsecond is a millionth of a second. So pretty quick. Um, and basically, DAX is a cache that sits in front of Dynamo. It works in write-through mode. So if you write to DAX, it will then um, pass that write through to Dynamo, write in Dynamo, and then also um, place that in its cache as well. Uh, and then that obviously that that data is then available to be to be read from the cache. You can control the cache size through the the node size that you choose. So you can go from an R3 large through to an, an R3 8 extra large. Uh, and you can also have uh, between one and ten nodes, Pete, as well. And those nodes are basically read replicas um, to to kind of spread the read load out. Now, whenever you mention uh, cache, the first question people say is, uh, is is what's the time to live on the cache? So the the time to live is five minutes by default, uh, mm-hmm. but you can obviously you can configure that, uh, and it's also an LRU cache as well. So least recently used um, will get pushed out of the cache if the cache gets full. Uh, but very, very exciting for those applications where you either need that extreme low latency or one of the other use cases that we see is where customers have a really read-intensive application yeah. and they want to take some of the load off uh, Dynamo to basically be able to to serve a lot of those requests um, out of the cache uh, instead. And obviously one of the benefits of doing that is that you can potentially um, reduce the uh, the provision throughput that you have on Dynamo. So there's a, there's a cost saving to be had there um, if you do have that very read intense workload, um, or also if you have um, uh, a lot of hotspots in your data as well. So sometimes it's difficult to avoid hotspots where a lot of customers are requesting the same information from from your database. Mm. Obviously, uh, a cache can can help you there. So very very exciting. Um, it uses the same API as, as Dynamo, uh, and initially we've released an SDK for Java, uh, which will communicate with DAX, and that actually uses a very low-level TCP interface that's finely tuned for that low latency and, and high throughput, uh, and other languages will will follow as well. Uh, so that's currently in preview, Pete, in US East, US West, uh, and the EU as well. So if you're interested in that, um, uh, check that out. And also having, obviously, that uh, closer to where your EC2 instances are is also very useful, uh, which now uh, leads me to the point of VPC endpoints for Dynamo in the, are now currently in public preview. That's right. So let me just fit, mention that uh, DAX can actually run in, in, in your VPC. Mm-hmm. Actual cache layer can run in, in VPC. Uh, and as you say, we've now added VPC endpoints for DynamoDB as well. So what that means is that your EC2 instances that are within your VPC can actually access Dynamo using their private IP address. So there's no exposure to the public internet. Very cool. doesn't leave the Amazon network. Um, and therefore, those EC2 instances don't require a public address. You don't need an internet gateway, a NAT device, uh, or anything else in your VPC. You can basically just uh, connect through the endpoint. Uh, and obviously, that endpoint also gives you then a bit more control um, over who can access those VPC endpoints as well, Pete. No, it's very, very cool. And actually, when I think about working on a share trading application many, many years ago now, um, they operate in you know very, very small time increments. You know, when you make that trade, you want to make sure it's already bought or it's at the right price. So uh, That's right. you know, DAX and having you know um, the endpoints in VPC is certainly going to speed up access to your DynamoDB database table. So 
Very, very cool. Now, again, speaking about databases, let's keep digging deeper here, Russ. Um, tell us a little bit about the database migration service and its support for Mongo, which I was surprised to hear, and now Amazon DynamoDB. Yeah, that's right, Pete. So as you know, the database migration service has been around for a little while now and started off very much focused around relational databases, allowing you to migrate exactly. from traditional relational databases um, on-premise uh, into the cloud. Um We've recently announced support for Mongo as a source. So if you do have uh, Mongo that you're using for some kind of application, you can get the database migration service to actually pick up uh, changes in the Mongo database and then propagate them through uh, into the cloud. So it works with uh, Mongo 2.6.x and also 3.x and works in a couple of modes, Pete. So there's there's a mode called document mode. Now, as you know, Mongo is a, mm-hmm. a, a document NoSQL database, so basically uses uh, it makes heavy use of JSON. Document database, yeah. Mm-hmm. And document mode will essentially treat that JSON blob as is. So it will pull that out and basically put that blob into a column in the target database. Uh, right. And optionally, you can pull out the ID and have the ID in a separate column, which obviously makes sense, so then you can find it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can use something called table mode, where we'll actually try and flatten that JSON out for you a little bit. So we'll actually take the top-level fields and try and transform them uh, into columns in your in your target database. Um, nice. so for certain applications, yeah, that might be that might be more useful. Um, and you can use CDC. So CDC is change data capture, and so it will actually, on an ongoing basis, you know, pick up those changes as as um, as things happen in, in Mongo. So uh, so that's very exciting actually. And I've got a couple of customers who. I know we're going to jump at that. And then on the target side, we've just added uh, Dynamo um, as a target. So you can, obviously, you can bring stuff in from Mongo, but also from relational databases as well, and then point them to Dynamo and actually have have Dynamo populated um, from those other databases. Now, obviously, Pete, going from relational to NoSQL, there's going to be some kind of mapping that you need to do there. uh, And we've tried to make that, pretty flexible so you've got lots of options as to how you map those relational columns to your um, to your schema in Dynamo. Uh, but yeah, lots of flexibility there in the way that you do that. But um, but that is particularly exciting. A lot of, again, a lot of customers who um, who have applications that are running um, a SQL database, but they want to get that data into um, into Dynamo. Yeah, I should just for fun move a MongoDB into a DynamoDB. That could be the fun because you know only only <laughs> you could say that. Only to you, uh, <laughs> a table mode. Only you awesome. could say for fun. I'm going to move some data from this NoSQL database to that NoSQL database. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just that kind of a guy. Just uh, and you guys should do it too. You know, just experiment. Obviously, you know, take the services that have just come out and all the functionality, um, push it to its limits. Um, and uh, you know, as as uh, Adrian Cockroft mentioned in the last show, see where the rubber band breaks. Exactly. Now, talking new services, Pete. <laughs> uh, we've talked about X-ray in the past when we announced mm-hmm. it, um, and I believe now it is available. Indeed. So AWS X-Ray is now available to all our customers. And uh, just to recap, so AWS X-Ray really helps developers to um, analyze and debug your production or apps that are currently being built. Uh, And it's really designed for looking at distributed applications. Um, And in particular, it's really useful for things like microservice architectures. 
the idea is that you know you want to better understand the flow within your application uh, and how the underlying services are performing uh, to potentially identify any you know hotspots or bottlenecks. So essentially be able to troubleshoot the root causes of any performance issues or any errors that are actually occurring within your distributed platform that you may have put together. Um, and X-Ray gives you essentially an end-to-end visual view um, that represents how you know your application is behaving and it draws you a lovely map uh, of your underlying components that actually make up your architecture. So X-Ray is able to analyze uh, you know, essentially any application that you're working on uh, whether it's a three-tier or a very large, you know, uh, massive, you know, thousands of services uh, kind of a platform. Um, and it now supports uh, tracing for AWS Lambda functions. Very so nice. Very nice. It's very, very cool because these are in preview. Um, and uh, if you're using Lambda with um, uh, Node in particular, for example, that makes it even easier. Uh, so the idea is that um, Lambda developers can use X-Ray to gain really more visibility into how they're, um, you know, microservices are behaving so that you can essentially all you got to do by the way is to activate it right now is you simply ensure that the functions you've created have a role that allows uh, permissions to access the x-ray service Uh, you then when you create the actual functions enable tracing um, on a function by function basis you decide which ones you actually want to have um, x-rayed and then essentially those permissions allow lender to actually pass on information into the x-ray service so once it's actually done um, you know you can look at these flows Uh, it generates you know two or two or more nodes in your x-ray maps this is how you visualize them and you'll see things like the lambda node which is the actual lambda service and you get to see um, how much time has been spent inside the lambda service itself you get to see how much time has been spent inside your actual user function uh, so this is the node that represents the execution of your code. And then you can also visualize and see the downstream um, service calls that are going out to other nodes that represent calls to um, other services that you may be actually be calling other components of your application. So it's a really nice uh, way of making it a lot easier to do distributed debugging in many respects, uh, where you get full visibility into and across the, uh, the different components that your applications are actually referring to and calling upon in your call stack. So, yeah, well worth having a play with. Um, Like I said, it's available now, so go check it out. Um, And speaking of other uh, availability, uh, we've now announced the open preview of Amazon Aurora with Postgres compatibility, Russ. You want to shed some light on that for us? Yeah, so just a quick one here, Pete. We've mentioned before about Amazon Aurora with, with PostgreSQL compatibility. So originally Aurora was compatible with MySQL, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of customers said, hey, we love that, but can you give us a, a kind of a Postgres flavor as well? So we've we've gone from private preview now into a public preview. So uh, that public preview is open in US East. So if you're interested in that, you can sign up. Uh, so it's... Postgres uh, compatible with 9.6. The interesting thing here, Pete, too, is that the preview will include the Amazon RDS Performance Insights tool. Nice. Which uh, looks fantastic. So this gives you a much deeper look into your database to really get a handle on on performance and what's happening. So you can get right down into the detail of um, what's happening with each query, et cetera. Um, And I know a couple of DBAs who, who are really keen to get their hands on that. So... Um, yeah, so that's an added bonus. If you jump onto the preview there, you can have a bit of a play with that as well. Very cool. Now, talking about services that are coming along at a cracking pace, uh, it seems like every time we speak, uh, recognition has got some new feature. Um, tell us about uh, the the ability to detect explicit content with recognition, Pete. 
Yes, it's a, a brand new added functionality to the service. So for those that haven't used it yet, I highly encourage you to have a play with it. It's um, a lot of fun to use. And uh, Amazon Recognition is a service that helps, basically helps you um, to add functionality to do image analysis in your application. So with recognition, um, you can detect objects, scenes, faces, do face searches, face comparisons. And now, as Russ calls out, you can now identify inappropriate content in images. So this is a la clicking safe mode or uh, like when you do a browsing of the web of images uh, where you don't want to see some images. So now what you can do is you can call the API and what recognition will do is detect explicit or suggestive adult content in images, uh, which helps you to enable, I guess, you know, um, the blocking of inappropriate content without having to wait for your users to report that there's something inappropriate that's been posted online. So with a lot of online social sites or applications where um, user-generated content is uploaded in the thousands or tens of thousands uh, into your service, uh, the the uh, ability to now detect images that are potentially uh, inappropriate is very useful. Um, I actually had a play with the service. When you use the console and upload the image, it applies a Gaussian blur. Um, I did actually upload my own face, just for, for those that are wondering. Uh, and I'm not explicit or uh, inappropriate, which is good to hear. Um, but it's definitely worthwhile uh, having a look at um, you know how your images that may already be in your databases, how they actually rank. And what we give you is actually information uh, and additional tags about what's actually in the image and uh, its, its level of um, inappropriateness. So definitely a great addition to image analysis uh, as part of recognition, Russ. It's uh, definitely very helpful. Indeed, Pete. And I think uh, Polly as well, um, which is another in the the AI family has also got some new features. Yes, so so Polly is obviously uh, been around for a little while now. It's part of um, uh, you know AI services, uh, and it's a service that actually turns text into a lifelike speech. So Polly lets you create applications that essentially talk to you, and then begin to build a whole new set of categories of apps that which are essentially speech enabled. Um, so it's an AI deep learning service that continually keeps on evolving and produces human speech. So what we've done recently is added the ability for uh, the generated speech to actually be whispered to you. And uh, we can also now do synchronization uh, of speech to certain actual markups that you can then use to potentially animate, say, things like 3D avatars and do facial lip syncs. So one of the cool things, uh, and I'm going to play this for you now, is the whisper function. So have a listen to this. Hi. My name is Joanna. Can you hear me? I'm whispering to you. This is a very cool effect you can use for me to read any text you type. So there you go. So this is the actual speech markup in action, uh, which actually turns any one of the um, 47 voices that Polly can speak to, or speak in, rather, uh, in a whisper function. And the way you enable this is by um, using the SSML tags, which is a speech synthesis markup language, uh, which is part of W3C spec, in fact. Um, and you can actually apply the Amazon speech effect called whisper. Um, and it'll produce uh, segments of your audio file that actually have a, a different tone of voice, which is very, very cool. So great if you want to build up maybe a kid's app and uh, have a, a whisper function uh, that actually reads certain parts of the text in a different voice. I'm, I I enjoyed that so much. I'm wondering if we should do a whole show with that. What, yeah. With that, with a whisper function on? Yes. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. we should just well, get Joanna to do the whole show, but whisper the whole thing. Well, let's see how we go. Uh, guys, let us know what you think. <laughs> Look, if that wasn't enough, um, 
what we've also added is, like I said earlier, is the ability to um, synchronize the auto-generated um, MP3 audio file with the actual, perhaps, like I said, little attributes, uh, which you can then tie back to actions and uh, you know changes and tilts of the of the of the head. Um, be able to do things like lip syncing. So if you actually go and um, go into the actual console and request to have a different output file, uh, we can produce a number of different outputs. Um, and what you'll actually end up getting is essentially um, a, a, a separate text file, uh, formatted uh, item, uh, that actually highlights all the things that have been said at what particular time. So think of it as it's, it's a mini script with timings that actually says at this um, millisecond entry into the WAV file, the, the, the sound file, uh, you should now take a different action. So if you're building games potentially or, uh, or creating 3D avatars or trying to do uh, a lip sync to audio, all these great things will rely on the output file uh, that actually highlights all of the different um, uh, behaviors uh, that one should potentially apply to facial features and uh, animation. So Russ, another interesting example of evolving a service uh, and providing you know additional functionality that can actually you know help additional uh, systems and users to actually play with um, the output audio files. Very nice, Pete. Very nice indeed. Now to change gears for everybody, um, you use last time you mentioned that you like WorkDocs in previous shows. Um, so tell everybody about the new iOS app and its functionality. Yeah, I do enjoy WorkDocs very much, very much actually. And we've added some functionality into the app for iOS that it supports file sharing between the WorkDocs app and other apps on your phone as well, or your iPad as well. So basically what you can now do is that you can send the files from the app that you're using uh, straight to WorkDocs, uh, and that will then obviously save them uh, in the account. So you could do that with photos, for example, from, from Camera Roll, um, uh, you know, where you might have, for example, you might take a picture of a whiteboard um, and you want that straight to go into you into WorkDocs, you can do that. Um, and you can also, conversely, you can then share from, from WorkDocs, you can then uh, share those files with other apps, potentially edit them, and then maybe maybe save them back again. So just a uh, just a quick one, Pete, but a, a quite a uh, just to try and reduce the friction between uh, using WorkDocs uh, on your phone or iPad. Yes, and it's always tough to use mobile devices to be uh, you know be able to produce content in. So it's nice to see that you can now whatever you've created be able to push into your WorkDocs folder and share with your with your teams and colleagues. That's right. Now we just did a little little detour into. Uh, into the world of uh, document sharing, but I think we should get back into the world of AI. Pete, let's talk about Lex. Lex, well, one of the other AI services. Um, so now Amazon Lex is now generally available to all of our customers. Uh, as you guys know, we've announced it at reInvent and it's part of um, what makes Alexa work. So it's a service for building conversational interfaces uh, for your apps using both voice and text um, so Lex basically comes out of the same um, deep learning technologies that powers Amazon Alexa. Uh, and we open this up for developers to be able to take this and uh, quickly and easily extend your ap applications uh, to turn them into more sophisticated language-neutral conversational bots. So think of our Amazon uh, Lex as an easy way to build uh, chatbots, essentially, um, and the way it works is you just uh, supply a few simple phrases uh, indicating um, how your customers might want to interact with your bot. 
uh, and Amazon Lex will actually build the natural language models for you um, based on that input data. So think of it as uh, Lex maintains the context and manages the actual dialogue flows, um, dynamically adjusting the responses based upon the conversation flow that you're actually having with your chatbot. And this is, like I said, both via voice, human voice or text, so you can type it. Um, so you can create essentially chatbots for use on mobile devices, in your web apps, um, you know, your chat platforms and tie them into things like Facebook Messenger. Uh, if you're using Slack, you can build Slack bots, uh, potentially use them as uh, Twilio chatbots for SMS message delivery, um, or, or, you know, just directly interact with those services inside the Amazon Lex console. Now, this is a fully managed service, um, and you don't have to worry about scale because we will scale the backend and the infrastructure because it's a managed service. Um, and fundamentally, um, you know, it's a software, it's a service uh, connector, if you like, uh, that you can actually also use uh, to connect your chatbot into things like Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, Marketo, Zendex, QuickBooks, HubSpot, or whatever other backend you'd like to build. So that's actually very, very cool. And if that wasn't enough, um, um, you know, if you've ever used the AWS uh, Mobile Hub, which is a great service that lets you easily add and configure features for your mobile apps, which includes things like uh, authentication, data storage, uh, backend logic, push notifications, uh, content delivery, and analytics. Um, mobile Hub actually helps you build apps really quickly that use those backend services. Um, now, Amazon Lex is now included in there. So as you click through the wizard in Mobile Hub, um, Amazon Lex can actually be added to it. So what that means is when you get um, the final application, when you can select whether it's an iOS or an Android app, uh, when you actually get the actual app, um, it now includes um, support for Lex. So when it finally gets downloaded, um, the Quick Start app uh, uses the Lex SDK, uh, so you can now actually you know, acquire speech or use text input uh, from within the mobile app to interface with Amazon Lex and have an actual conversation with the, with the actual chatbot. So um, quite a lot of integrations gone into it. So if you really want to quickly experiment with the, uh, uh, the Lex service, go to Advita Console. Once you've done that, then go to Mobile Hub, build your app, app applications really quickly. Uh, inside a couple of minutes, literally, you can have a mobile iOS or Android app that you can download and run within an emulator or a simulator uh, in your IDE. And uh, you're off and running with your chatbot. Yeah, awesome. I think those, those SaaS connectors, Pete, really really open up uh, a lot of use cases. So uh, great to see all that integration going on. Yeah, great for customer service apps or, you know, for Slack, for example, a lot of developers, um, you know, are building, you know, a single point of interface for kicking off builds, getting status updates, health of the environment, uh, seeing some really clever innovation out there, in fact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, talking of innovation, uh, I realized the day that you, you come up with lots of different innovative ways to talk about tagging in every single show. I do try. There's always, there's always a mention of tagging. Uh, and I realized that this show is no different. Not at all. And AWS Lambda supports tagging and cost allocation. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> so you can use tags you know, now to add metadata to each of your functions. Um, and you know, like every other tag, it's, you know, it consists of a key and a value pair. Um, and uh, you can use these tags to allocate costs for your AWS bill to individual functions. So um, 
there's no additional charge for this, but it's really cool because now you can actually preview and see um, which of those functions is uh, being called more frequently. So if you are doing chargebacks or trying to do some cost accounting, uh, we give you flexibility around being able to you know, filter and organize around your cost spend, which is really, really cool. That's great. Love that. Uh, now, just while you're on Lambda, um, I got an email today. Did you get an email as well, Pete, about uh, the end of life for the dot one node runtime? Indeed, yes. I also got it today, and many of you perhaps may have got that as well. If you've been playing with Lambda since its uh, very beginning, then chances are you might still be running on the V0.1 version of the Lambda uh, on the uh, sorry node runtime uh, inside Lambda. Um, so this email talks about. Uh, and just reminds everybody that the Node Foundation has declared end of life for Node.js version 0.1 uh, back in October 31st last year. Um, and uh, they're now suggesting that you should start moving over into uh, a newer version of the runtimes. Uh, so uh, what we are suggesting is you consider moving to Node version 4.3. Uh, or perhaps more appropriate to the latest version, which is version 6.1. Um, and we provide you a whole bunch of documentation. So if you go and look through the um, um, docker around transitioning Lambda function code to newer runtimes, uh, we actually walk you through in quite a fair bit of detail around how you should go about doing that. Now, for most people, um, you probably don't have to worry too much about this because uh, the changes within Lambda, so within Node, haven't been that significant unless you're using some specific libraries and so forth. But for, for most um Node application, you'll find it should be just a matter of changing the runtime itself, and hopefully uh, things should just work, Russ. Very, very nice, Pete. Now, just before we go, a couple of other quick things. Um, give us a quick rundown on this new feature within Marketplace, which I think is quite sure. cool, where you can actually copy that to your service catalog. Yeah, so this is basically, so um, there's a new feature which is released, which enables customers to copy AWS Marketplace products directly into AWS Service Catalog. Now, what this really does is it simplifies the process by which, you know, you can organize and control the software that you have, you know, procured from the marketplace, but also how you fulfill it through and deliver it to your end users. Now, for those that aren't too familiar with AWS Service Catalog, uh, essentially it's a tool for managing your organization's approved software and infrastructure stacks that run on AWS. So, with this new feature, uh, IT admins and software buyers can procure products from the marketplace and copy them directly into the service catalog entries so that your users, provided you're giving them permissions, can actually uh, go to the actual service catalog and self-provision particular uh, set of, you know, either a single virtual machine or a whole stack of infrastructure. Uh, and service catalog behind the scene uses cloud formation templates uh, with parameters that you can launch particular different types of setups depending on the user's needs. So when you subscribe to the uh, Marketplace product now, um, and you know, the, in the service catalog fulfillment options, you will now see an option next to the uh, one-click and manual launch option uh, to create a new service catalog fulfillment entry. So what this does is takes a copy of the product and goes off and creates your cloud formation template and includes that Amazon machine image or the Amy into the, into the service catalog and puts it into your service catalog for your users to consume. So this really simplifies the process. In the past, um, you would have to then manually go and create the cloud formation templates. Uh, we've taken away the burden of that heavy lifting uh, and simply automate the whole process. So it's available in your catalog really, really quickly. 
Nice. I like it. Now, just one quick thing before we go. Uh, if yes. you If you get the price list via our API, we've made that uh, a little bit easier. So those price lists are now regionalized. So um, there's one per region. Um, so obviously those lists are a little bit smaller, so they'll download much more quickly. Um, the the original non-regionalized ones are still there, so, um, so you can still get those. But uh, if you're after a particular region, you can be much more targeted in what you bring down. Because they used to be very big, Russ. They were like, you know, with so many regions that we have now, um, they were getting bigger and bigger into multi-megabytes in size. That's right. That's right. So just a, a nice little service there to make things a little bit easier. Now, Pete, that was uh, an action-packed show with lots and lots in it. I enjoyed that very much. I hope um, you did as well. Now, um, if you, if listeners, you do have anything in the show that you would like us to do a deep dive on, um, for example, let me just throw something out there. If you wanted to do a whole show on Redshift Spectrum, I would be more than happy to do that. If conversely, or poly, you, or, or well, poly gonna, in, in, in hush hush mode with whispering in your ear, or, perhaps one of those. Let us know Variants. if you'd like someone to whisper uh, for an hour. Um, or conversely, I'm thinking if there's enough support, um, Pete would like to do a deep dive on tagging for 60 minutes, <laughs> a 60-minute show on tagging. I think personally think that would be riveting. Let us know if you'd like to, uh, to hear that and we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. Yes, and look, we were really close to doing a show with Full Whisper. I lost my voice after the Sydney Summit, so um, we're pretty close to it. So I'm glad it's finally back and hopefully I sound human again. So, guys, thanks for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed the show and uh, we'll look forward to um, making the next one of those in the next fortnight or two. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.